Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your questions, your observations, your complaints, your inquiries, and ultimately your comments on tennis and other things. 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab, many of you left your comments, and for the first time in a couple of weeks, I am happy to bring another mailbag. Um, I think I'm going to make a change programming announcement. I think I'm going to start doing uh, mailbags on Wednesday. I think I'll I'll be able to do it more consistently if I switch it to Wednesday because you know a lot of the times I find myself having you know other big matches on Friday and I want to cover the matches and then it becomes a lot like this is what happened last week then it becomes a lot to cover the matches and do a mailbag so I believe that change is coming mailbags instead of on Friday will be moved to Wednesday with that let us get to our first question. It comes from Sports Fanatic. Just love sports. Looks like a fan of the Atlanta Braves, although it's a little bit blurry in on what I'm looking at. Um, sports Fanatic, do you think FAA has? Oh, do you think what FAA has done to end the season can translate into making runs at the Slams next year? He was so close in big matches at a couple slams this year and fell just short. Presumably talking about the Australian Open, great five-setter with Daniil Medvedev. Potentially referring also to Roland Garros, great five-setter against eventual champion Rafael Nadal. It is true. Those were two of the most impressive Felix matches of the year in the best-of-five format. He did make that U.S. Open semifinal at, uh, in 2021. Carlos Alcaraz retiring in the quarterfinal with the hip issue. So, you know, Car uh, FAA has had his share of runs, but certainly we have not seen the dominance that FAA has displayed in the last month or so um, at Masters 1000s or Slams, right? So, look, here's the deal. He's going to go outside, and more of the points are going to, or less of the points, I want to say, are going to be serve plus one oriented, and he's going to have to win some rallies. So there's no doubt that the skills that help him on indoor hard courts are going to help him elsewhere, especially and particularly on grass, definitely on you know any kind of slick hard court but the reality of the situation is uh Felix precision server precision forehand you know in the serve plus one 
That is what nobody's been able to touch. That is why his first serve points one percentage has been consistently over 80% throughout this entire run. Three straight titles, Paris-Bercy semifinals in the last four events. Um, And, you know, once he goes outside, especially on the slower surfaces, uh, a much slimmer slice of the pie in terms of points played in a match are going to be those, you know, bang, bang, hit a good first serve, hit a good forehand, and that, and the point is over. And, you know, Felix just needs to continue to develop in his point construction, his defense, his court positioning, which has improved vastly. Uh, I also think his second serve can get a lot better, especially in more difficult conditions with wind, uh, because he is hitting his second serve quite hard recently on these indoor hard courts, but he does not place it well. And I do think the best returners are uh, are going to be able to sometimes take advantage of that. Most of Felix's second serves are very, very central, you know, often into the body. Many times players are able to get forehands off of it. Um, you know, but look, it's been a great year. It's been a really, you know, successful year for Felix. It's funny though. After he won his um his first title on this on this stretch, I made that video um asking if it's been a good season for Felix and and Rublev. And I argued that it hasn't been a good season for, for Rublev or a successful 2022. I shouldn't say good. I should say successful 2022 for Rublev relative to expectations. And it has been a good 2022 for FAA relative to expectations. This was after uh, Felix won Florence. And uh, many in the comments disagreed with me saying, yes, it was a good season for FAA. Um, and I, I bet I bet a lot of people would be on my side just a couple of weeks later after all the damage he's done recently. All right, this next one is from Ed Wong. Hey, Gil, I left this comment on your previous videos. Okay. Uh, with Simone's retirement, as well as Sangha's, can you talk about the French big four? Those two, Gazquet and Monfils. Can you talk about their careers, their projected careers when they were young? Many thought three of them would become world number one at different points in time. Their strengths and weaknesses rank their forehands, backhands. Okay. Um, well, I don't think any of them were really major disappointments. And uh, I know, I, I don't know if that's a hot take or what, but like, I get that Gazke was a dominant teenager. I get that he has a pretty beautiful game, but... The serve isn't big. The forehand isn't a weapon. I mean, I I don't know what you want. Like, uh, when was, when should, I, I don't know where people are getting, you know, Gazquet should have won a bunch of majors and been top five. I, I don't, you know, I mean, he's extremely talented, great ball striker um, in, in a lot of ways, but the firepower just isn't really great with uh, Richard Gazquet. So I don't think he underachieved, um, you know, Sangha had some mobility issues. He wasn't great defensively. Offensively, he was a juggernaut. Huge forehand, great serve, attacked the net very athletically and powerfully. I don't think he underachieved. Gilles Simone 
played his style just about as well as you can play that style. You know, we know that Gilles Simone was going to run up against, you know, issues against top players with how he tried to play the game and how he successfully played the game and had a great career. Uh, Gil Monfils is your best argument there. You know, you could say that, that Monfils could have been better in his career, uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, there still could be some good moments to come in, in the career of Gail Monfils. You know, that, that's the best argument because obviously athletically extremely gifted. Um, and then in terms of what he was able to do from a racket skill standpoint, there was a ton there, a lot there. It's just uh, shot selection never came together. Point construction never came together. What kind of shots should I hit? Where should I be on the court? Um, you know, his ability to manage a match in terms of his poise and his focus. Those things were all kind of lacking from the very start. But those things did get better. You could argue that once those things got better, Monfils had already lost too much uh, physically. And as a result, you know, he never really got the best of both worlds. Um, if you are going to compare their careers. I want to pull up a tweet of my own. Um, I'm going to pull that up and that will give me the ability to kind of compare the two. Um, so Simone is not included in this. I'm sorry. But um, if you actually put all the French players next to each other, very clear Sanga was the best. Sanga had the best career. Uh, he had six year-end top tens, a career high ranking of number five, 18 career titles, one major final, that was the the Australian Open in um, 08. And five semifinals. Or 09. Sorry if I got that one wrong. Anyway, uh, five major semifinals. Uh, Monfils and Gazquet, all below that. Monfils had two year-end top tens. Gazquet had four year-end top tens. Monfils had a career high of six. Gazquet, seven. Remember, Sangha, five. Uh, Monfils, 11 titles. Gazquet, 15 titles. Sanga 18. Um, and then Mon uh, Monfils, Gazquet, they never made a major final. And Monfils made two semis. Gazquet made three semis. Uh, in terms of, like, sentimentally, what they've meant, and I guess on a more positive note, I think all of them were massively entertaining in terms of their, their games. Um, Monfils, a showman, Sanga, uh, a really great shot maker with, you know, a, he seemed to really enjoy the game. Gazquet, uh, a grace and elegance of beauty. Uh, Simone, um, what I kind of said about Simone is that when I was first watching tennis, Gilles Simone was one of the players who was so viscerally different in terms of how he played the game. Uh, he actually uh, taught me a lot about tennis uh, because it was so obvious, and to an untrained eye, it can be hard to see the nuances, but with Simone, it was so obvious that he was playing so completely differently uh, in terms of how he was constructing points and, and winning points, taking pace off the ball, uh, winning off of consistency, waiting for you know the court to open up, waiting for his opponent to attack oftentimes before uh, he would you know counter he was really the ultimate counterpuncher, and uh, that taught me a lot. 
Max Dangvu, hey Gil, uh, who do you reckon will be more satisfied with their season between Nadal and Djokovic when they could play? I think Nadal achieved the highest level on tour overall, but Djokovic has cons- has been consistently harder to beat. This shows as they have the two highest match winning percentages in 2022. Also, I do think Nadal will be motivated by ATP finals because he hasn't won the title and year-end number one. No matter how much he distances himself from it, uh, it will be appealing for him in my opinion. Yeah, it would be appealing for him. I just don't think that he would think that he has a chance. I mean, he knows that his level has been far off of you know, what he needs for a long time now. He has not played that level since Wimbledon. And we've seen oftentimes he's, you know, come into, um, he's come into this event without those concerns and still not won it. So uh, I don't think Nadal is thinking about winning this title, honestly. Uh, but okay. Who's had a better year, Nadal or Djokovic? You know, that's a pretty good question. Uh, I would reduce it to, you know, at this point, basically the slam race, um, and I think I'd give it to Nadal. It's funny. Both of them have obviously missed time. For Djokovic, it hasn't been injury-related. For Nadal, it has. Uh, in, in that respect, both of them have had difficult years. Djokovic emotionally, mentally, Nadal physically. Uh, so, you know, it's been a very, very strange and interesting 2022. I like that you pointed out the win percentage. Uh, I, I weirdly think win percentage is kind of an underlooked statistic which is crazy, right? Like, you'd think we should pay attention to percentage of matches won, you know? Like, isn't that a stat that, like, should, again, like, get a lot of attention? For some reason, it doesn't. Yeah, Nadal and Djokovic, one and two. Man, that means a lot. That tells you a lot. Really, really does. Alcaraz is three. Kyrgios is four. Um, So... I think they've both had really good years in terms of level and encouraging years. It's just been difficult, you know, for some for some other factors. But you got to take Nadal with who's had the better year. You know, you win the two majors versus the one. And uh, at this point, at this point, that's what it's about for them. Espectros del Rizoma. By the way, um, Never mind. Never mind. Sorry about that. Espectros, uh, isn't it obvious by now that the approximately 20 years old gen, Alcaraz, Runa, Ali Asim, Sinner, is much stronger than the approximately 25 years old gen, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Zverev, already in terms of current potential, uh, but especially in terms of future potential and probability of winning slams? Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I think that is somewhat obvious. Uh, I agree. I agree. You know, Alcaraz has already surpassed many of those players in terms of, you know, level. Obviously, he's now won a major. Medvedev is the only guy in that group who has won a major. Runa is is very complete, you know, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Zverev, they are all they are all quite imperfect. You know, as, as great as they all are, they are all imperfect. And Runa and Alcaraz, much harder to poke holes in their games. I I, I haven't, you know, honestly, I haven't gone back 
and put them next to each other in terms of, okay, let's see, where was Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Zverev, where were they all at when they were 19? But I can tell you almost for certain that, now Rublev had some health issues, you know, he had that terrible back injury. Uh, Medvedev, a late bloomer, he was nowhere in the mix. You know, Zverev and Tsitsipas would be the only two guys who have a chance, you know, maybe at 19 years old could hold a candle to Alcaraz and Runa. Although, again, Alcaraz has really surpassed them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think those things are clear. Um, you know, Felix feels like he's been around a while. Felix almost gets lumped in with some of the next-gen guys just because he has been a well-known commodity for a while. But yeah, you forget you forget his age. You really do. Lori Dibon. Dibon. I have noticed in the last 9-10 months, Sinner adding more variety to his game. What do you think he needs to do to make the next step to go all the way in slams? Thanks. Love your channel. Well, the big thing for, for him this year... Uh, I, I guess there's two things. One, you know, he made, he was so consistent, like so consistent. Bear C, I said I couldn't put him on upset alert, even though I thought he was injured. And then he ended up losing to Hoosler. Um, so I said he might lose that match, but I can't put him on upset alert because I, I can't do that to a guy who's gone almost the whole year without getting upset. Um, and then he got upset. Um, so he's been unbelievable, unbelievably consistent. Quarterfinal, quarterfinal, quarterfinal. I mean, almost like a machine. Uh, but he he has struggled against the upper echelon. He has struggled to pick up some big wins. So I think in, in that sense, serve needs to get better. Variety needs to continue to get better. Um, he can add some wrinkles. There's no doubt about that. But I think in the larger picture, ultimately his legs need to keep getting stronger. He was injured too much this year. A lot of them were, I think, what you would call, you know, soft tissue injuries. So like wear and tear injuries, nothing acute or traumatic where you might say, okay, like, you know, you just got unlucky and something freaky happened. It just felt like he was wearing down a lot. So ultimately, he needs to keep building up his body so he can stay healthy. And I think that'll help his progress a lot. Um, and, you know, I think he can still get uh, even more athletic around the court. Um, but the return of serve looked really awesome this year. And he played some some really solid tennis from the baseline and had a great season, ultimately. From Racket Talk, hey, Gil, a couple of questions. One, do you find it a little strange that Alcaraz is running into, into injuries this early in his career? I do get... Uh, what, he did play three straight five-setters at the U.S. Open and eventually won it. It was actually the, the most time on court anyone has ever spent en in, in route to winning it. And I'm ad-libbing it. Uh, back to the comment. Uh, but after the U.S. Open, Astana didn't go well. Basel was somewhat decent. Then the performance in Paris was not great, and he is missing his first World Tour Finals. Do you think longevity is going to be an issue for him as his career moves along? And do you see him making his game less physical and more efficient? Well, all right, a couple things. First of all, I don't think Alcaraz has been concerningly injury-prone. I really don't. I think the timing of his injuries 
have, you know, maybe thrust, uh, I guess, okay, here, here's what I'm trying to say. Last year at the U.S. Open, he gets injured and has to retire from his first major quarterfinal. Lots of eyes, lots of attention. That's a big time match. So it sticks in our it sticks in our head. You know, we we remember that. Uh, and and yeah, now uh, he tore his oblique. It is uh, that particular injury is just a classic tennis injury. It just it happens to a lot of players, and uh, it stinks. And I don't know how much can be done about it. It it is one of those freak things. Obviously, some players are more susceptible about it to others, but these ab tears, they're kind of like the torn ACLs of tennis. Uh, thankfully, they're not as bad as tearing your ACL. You're not out as long. But in terms of just like that injury that you see repeatedly popping up all over the tour, ab tears um, and ab strains, unfortunately. So I see very little evidence that he's injury prone. I guess my point in you know bringing up that U.S. Open and the fact that there was so much attention on it, if that happened last fall, I don't think anybody would even be thinking about it. You know, it would be a complete non—it would be a non-discussion. But since that first injury happened, when everybody was paying attention, this last injury comes. You know, you know, in the last couple of weeks, and it's fresh in our minds. Uh, maybe there's that thought that Alcaraz is injury prone, but. Uh, to me, I haven't really, I haven't seen that. You know, I've seen him. In fact, I've I've been impressed with his durability. I'm not going to lie. I think he's shown to be very durable. Uh, on two occasions, he's had to play two matches in one day. And both times he went 2-0. One of the times he played the longest three-setter of the year versus Demonor. We saw at the U.S. Open, his body held up through that absolute hellish gauntlet of five-setters. So... I, I really don't see the durability being a problem. And do I see him making his game more efficient? I don't know. You know, I mean, he's he's not passing up any opportunities to finish points. So I would say no. I would say the answer is no to that. Uh, I don't think he's playing more physical than he has to right now. Uh, there might be a point in his career where he recognizes that he's unable to get to shots and he stops selling out for them. I think what he does sometimes is he shows some hustle. Uh, just to show hustle, and there's really no chance he's not going to get there, and he still runs for it. Will he kind of lose that youthful energy and start to preserve his body on some of those, I'll call them 1% balls, meaning, or I'll say 0.01% balls, where there's he's basically going to lose the point guaranteed, and he still busts his butt to try to get to the ball. Will he stop doing that at some point? I'm sure. But in general, I don't think uh, he's wasting much energy, and I don't see his game getting a lot less physical than it is right now. In fact, I, I think he should make his game more physical. And what I mean by that is he should, he should miss less. He should make it a priority to get a little bit more consistent at times and uh, start to get more comfortable um, in baseline rallies, staying consistent at times. You know, don't lose the aggression, but pick your spots. Recognize when there's an opening and take it, but do not force it. And sometimes he forces it. 
Second question here, how many good years do you see for Nadal and Djokovic? I'm going to take a pass on this one. Uh, again, it's about health. It's about, and I've said this many times before, I hate predicting longevity. The number of people who would have been correct about Nadal's longevity, if we polled everybody in 2017, I would say, I would say maybe one out of, I would say nine out of 10 people would have been wrong. Nine out of 10. And it's, it, it feels silly to me. You know, what do I know? You know, how could I possibly predict when Father Time is going to catch up to Novak Djokovic and his body? I just, I feel like it's a shot in the dark. I feel like it's a total guess. And I, I just, I choose not to, to do it. This next one is from Vishnu. Uh, I have a couple of questions. One, this is a personal question. I'm a Federer fan. Whenever I need some motivation, I watch some of the highlights of 2017 Australian Open as it is one of the most inspirational comebacks that I have ever seen. But at the same time, Wimbledon 2019 was probably the most heartbreaking loss that I have ever seen. Roger losing that final, having two championship points, has been a nightmare. And sometimes even now that loss still haunts me if I think of it. My question is, how should fans come out of slash forget heartbreaking losses like these? And please share any experience if you had dealt with this kind of situation. Um, like if your favorite player like Ferrer lost in a very close match. I'll answer that and then I'll get to the second one. My mentality with this is is usually that, you know, all of that, all of the emotion that you kind of put into or the investment, the emotional investment that you put into someone, uh, the pain, the pain is part of the ride. And when you do have those successes, you do have those feel good moments. It only feels good because you've been through that pain. You know, you've, you've been through those losses. You know, anyone who tells you that they can get the euphoria of the wins and they can avoid the pain of the losses, they're, they're lying. It just doesn't work that way. You only get the euphoria with the pain. It's a package deal. So that's always how I look at those things. But, you know, with Federer being, you know, done, obviously, he's never going to get to avenge that 2019 Wimbledon. So... I guess you have to kind of cope with something like that in, in different ways. And at some point there's obviously uh, maybe some sort of acceptance. I don't know how you get to that. Um, maybe it manifests itself in the next time you feel a similar way about a player like Roger. And maybe that pain from 2019 Wimbledon makes you feel even more euphoric when that next player is able to come through a match like that. And it kind of transfers over. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's it. Uh, but it's all part of the beauty of uh, of this game. Like playing it, being a fan of it, you know, it's all part of the beauty of it is is feeling the entire spectrum of, of emotions, right? So maybe just accept. It's not necessarily getting over it and, and accepting the result as, well, now I'm not sad about it anymore. Maybe just accept that it's always going to hurt, you know, and maybe just not even trying to get over it, you know, accept that that pain is just a part of the story. And uh, maybe it's never going to feel any different, right?
too. Uh, since Novak couldn't, I have no uh, no expertise, by the way, in um, psychological uh, trauma. <laughs> and by the way, I'm I'm joking because I know it's not really trauma. It's hyperbole. Uh, two, since Novak couldn't play, and after Rafa lost in the fourth round, I feel that Nick Kyrgios missed a great chance in winning the U.S. Open by losing to Hachinov in the quarterfinals. I felt that he looked a bit flat and tired in the first couple of sets. I felt that it's probably because he had played doubles, a doubles three-setter, the previous day. Do you think that Kyrgios should concentrate only in singles and grand slams because it's extremely difficult to maintain fitness and play both singles and doubles for two weeks in a grand slam? Uh, what would you suggest him do in the future? Love your show and keep doing the great work. Well, it's tough. It's an interesting conversation. I think there are a lot of benefits to doubles, uh, especially for a player who maybe doesn't practice so well, has trouble focusing on the practice court, or doesn't like to practice, or feels a lot of anxiety on the off days of majors. You know, some players really don't like those off days. They like to play every day. They don't like to dwell have a whole day to just dwell on this big match coming up. And for those players, you know, it might be nice to have a doubles match, to get on the court, kind of in instead of having to hit the practice court, you can play doubles. That's your practice. Uh, it, it's a distraction. You get to feel your, your serve and your return and your volleys, obviously. So in a lot of ways, it can be good. I also think that young players should be playing doubles to develop their volleys and their return of serve. Uh, to get those repetitions in, I really feel like young players should be playing doubles as an investment. I feel strongly about that. And and when usually when I talk to former players, it's funny, they agree with me. Um, so it's so interesting that so many, you know, I'm gonna keep asking that question, you know, as I when I'm around the tour, um, to try to continue to figure out what the equation is on that. With that said, you gotta look at Players who have won majors and contended for majors over the years. They're not playing doubles. They're just not anymore. So the answer, like, I think you make a good point is pretty much where I st stand on this. I mean, I think Hatchinoff played a great match, um, an outstanding match. Um, but generally speaking, do I think Nick Kiro should be playing doubles if, if he's going to try to win majors? No. I probably don't. You got to look at what's worked. You got to look at what players who have won majors have done. And, you know, besides Krejcikova, obviously Roland Garros 2020, um, sorry, 2021, um, we haven't seen it much. So take note. Take note and do what the others are doing. Next one from Avi. Hey, Gil, I know 2022 is not done yet, but I want to say your coverage was amazing. Thanks so much. Uh, will Kyrgios attend the doubles ATP finals? And how do you think 2023 will go for him? And when will Rublev finally make a big breakthrough? Uh, let me check. I, I don't think Kyrgios... I don't think Nick Kyrgios is going, but let me try to do a quick search because I'm not... I haven't heard much. Oh, I think they are playing. Looks like they are. Yep, they're scheduled to play. So Kyrgios is in. Cool. I guess that's kind of fun. Kyrgios and Kokonakis in Turin. Um, look, I'm a believer in, in the tennis side of things right now for Nick. There's no doubt. I think he's 
he's had a he didn't have a good couple weeks. He didn't have a good month. He wasn't just good on grass. This was a with the exception of skipping the clay, this was a complete and holistic 2022 season where week in and week out Nick Kyrgios was a winner. And ultimately, I'm disappointed that he's not, you know, he didn't play enough to qualify in the singles. And obviously, you know, the Wimbledon points uh, were a non-factor for him. Uh, but I believe even with the Wimbledon points, he would have missed that top eight because he, he just didn't play enough. So to me, that's disappointing because I think he was clearly a top eight player this year. And again, just look at win percentage, fourth best win percentage on tour. I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. And a lot of wins against top 10 players, a good record against top 10 players. He's worked on his body. He's stronger and his effort level is high and boom, you know, that's it. So he's a winning, he's a winning player. Uh, when will Rublev finally make a big breakthrough? Uh, uh, man, I'm at, at the moment, at the moment, I'm not sure he will. I mean, I, I think Rublev is who he is at, right now and like if I'm if you're asking me like I don't know does he ever crack the top three I think no top four top five I mean top five now I'm like kind of on the fence about it but yeah like Andre Rublev has been between the sixth best player in the world and the eighth or ninth best player in the world. Like he's been in that range for three years now and there, there hasn't been any upward progress. So there's no trajectory there and I can get into the weaknesses of his game. Sure. But I don't really feel like doing that. I think I've covered a lot of that. Uh, I, I think the point is right now, the the second serve is the biggest obvious thing that I think should get better. Like it should improve. I really think in the next couple of years, I, I hope and I do think it should get better. The rest of the stuff that holds back Rublev, none of the other stuff I think is getting better. I, I don't think... The variety changes, the forecourt game changes, the sliced backhand changes, the point construction changes. I think all that stays the same. I don't think he gets any quicker. I don't think he starts to defend any better. The second serve, that's it. So I don't think that big breakthrough is really coming. I got two here, and I don't know why it's blurry. There we go. Okay, now, once I come back on the screen, I won't be blurry anymore. Uh, these are two from Sam. Uh, it's often said that one-handers struggled more to defend and return serve off their backhand side. Which one-hander do you think is best at returning and defending with their backhand and what makes them so good? Uh, okay, I'll answer that one first. Uh, Federer. Federer is your gold standard there, mostly because of the slice. When you don't have a lot of time and you have a one-hander, you can shorten up with that slice. And if you have a great one that you're able to move maneuver around the court defensively, that's going to be your best friend. That obviously includes the block return, the chip return, 
So Federer would definitely be my answer there. And then the second one is which players, if any, outside the top 15 do you think have the potential to become tier one? And what would they have to do to reach that level? I'm not going to go in tons of depth, but just looking at it, I think Shapovalov can get to tier one. I think Kyrgios can get to tier one. Look, he's not close. Not even close right now. But I think Davidovich Fakina has the tools to get to tier one and the athleticism to get to tier one. I think Sebastian Corda. And I think Jack Draper. And I'm going to stop there. I don't think anyone, you know, other than maybe, you know, super, super young prospects, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, those are the guys. Those are my guys. And most of them won't do it, by the way. Most of the players I name will never be tier one. But you asked me which players could, and could leaves a lot of room for what could happen. I'm going to hit a couple more here. This one's from Niklas, who is a member. Thank you for being a member. You can hit the join button, $2 a month to support the channel. It is much, much appreciated. As a citizen of the Nordic nations, I'm really proud of how our guys have ascended on tour this year. It's also interesting how each country has exactly one standout player, Rude, Runa, Rusevori, and Emer. On that note, do you see any development paths that the still young Rusevori and Emer can take to match the higher level of their Norwegian and Danish counterparts? Love it. So Rusevori, I'm very high on, and I think... He's very similar to Yannick Sinner. High ground stroke speeds, good consistent consistency. He brings it off of both, both wings. He's very long, uh, good on the return of serve, uh, but a, a little bit average on the movement side of things. Not a lot of variety, a little bit average on the serve, but his pure power ground stroke game is certainly there. Uh, Rusevori, Hmm. Sometimes it's tough in that power baseline or mold, but you know, maybe he can get a little quicker. I think that would help quite a bit if he can get quicker. I then I don't know if that's in him. I'm not I'm just not sure. Uh but the thing with the with the power baseliners is always kind of if I assume athletically you might be, you know, genetically at a disadvantage. You're never going to be all that fast, which is a fair assumption with a lot of them. A lot of them, that's a good assumption. It's kind of how can you bring all of those, all of that power off the ground that you're able to generate consistently, and how can you become the total package on the offensive side of things? And the way you do that is you develop a great serve and you become very comfortable finishing points at net. Taylor Fritz, Andre Rublev, Yannick Sinner, these power baseliners, that's what it's going to ultimately be about. Sinner has a little bit more athletically where, where he can defend better and has that extra kind of two-way-ness about him. But in terms of that play style, that's what it's always about. With Mike Lemer, it's weapons. He's got no weapons, offensively. He is tremendous, you know, defensively. It, it's kind of concerning though, because in terms of like, all right, 
Michael Emer, top 15, top 20, top 10. He needs to either, yeah, I mean, the serve and the forehand need to be bigger. It's really simple with Michael Emer. Otherwise, like, he can still have a great career, but you need some easier ways to win points. From Tangier, uh, first one. It is obvious that they still have lots of room for improvements, but as of now, how do you rate the four most promising younger phenomena, Carlos, Felix, Holger, Yannick, in terms of their completeness? Well, it's definitely not Felix. Felix has by far, out of that bunch, the best first serve, by far. But definitely not the most complete. I don't think Yannick is the most complete. I think, uh, you know, the outer edges of, of, of his game... They're not underdeveloped, but they're they're also not strengths. So it's definitely between Runa and F, uh, and Alcaraz, whose completeness has been one of the main things that has stood out to me about them. And I think Runa's shot selection and decision making is much better than than Alcaraz right now. But in terms of the completeness of uh, on the technical side of things. I still think it's probably Alcaraz. Uh, although both of them are so complete, I really think it's a tie because, you know, they're both players. Technically, I, I don't see, I, I really don't see holes. You could say, Gil, Runa has a better serve. And I would respond by saying, Runa's three inches taller and Alcaraz is faster. So what you have with Runa and Carlitos is, is your classic big guy or tall guy, he's slower and has a better serve. Little guy, he's faster and has a worse serve. And that's how it's supposed to be. Like, that's how that's how it is. Okay? So, you know, I think I I I don't want to, you know, deduct points from either Alcaraz for not serving as well as Runa or Runa for not being as fast as Alcaraz. I just think it, it makes sense with their body types. Uh, then the second one here is uh, Lorenzo Mossetti's playing style is really eye-catching, but do you believe he has the potential to reach the top 10? If not, then in which areas does he need to improve? I think the potential is there, uh, but he needs to get better serve forehand. When your backhand is your best shot, it's not a good thing. It's just not good. You do not want to be Benoit Paire. You do not want to be Richard Gasquet. Um, Stan Wawrinka, as a young player, his backhand was better than his forehand. What happened when he got good? What happened with Magnus Norman? The forehand. The forehand turned into a world-class you know, weapon. So... If your backhand is your shot, it's it's not a good thing. It's not a formula to be in the top 10. Uh, so Musetti needs to beef up the serve, needs to not only beef up the forehand, but also defend, it, defend on it better. Uh, but yeah, that backhand is tremendous. I mean, it is just breathtaking. So might do one more. Um, I'll do this one. This one's from Leanne. 
Hey, Gil, uh, what do you think about top players' practice sets? Do you think they play a role mentally in real matches? Like, do they remember if they win or lose in practice? I wonder how much they actually bring into these and if they try out new tactics. So, what I've heard is that players, there are some players who are very well known for being really awesome in practice, really difficult to beat in practice sets. And then there are other players who are well known for being really awful in practice, and they're very easy to beat in practice, and, and then they're tough to beat in the match. So, I think on tour, there's just this universal understanding that practice and the match is completely different. And I think for the most part, every player just kind of gets that. And, you know, there are certain practice dynamics, but um, I don't I don't think it plays too much of a role. I would love to ask some some players on tour this question. But in general, I feel like I feel like everybody just knows that the match is just a different ball game, you know, and that like you don't like if you beat Novak in a practice set, you're a fool. You're you're like an absolute fool if you interpret that as like, oh, I'm there. I'm right there. Right? In in a match. Um it just doesn't mean that because it's just not it's just not the same. It's so different. So, uh that's that. Um I wish I got to all of them, but I didn't. I'm sorry. Uh, if you left a comment that did not get answered, feel free to just copy and paste it. Go to the community tab. Copy your comment. Try again next week. If I don't answer it like three, four times in a row, I'm probably not interested in answering it. Uh, but you can be persistent. And uh, that will do it. So we got... Uh, next gen finals and a preview of the ATP finals uh, on next week's Monday match analysis. I will talk to you then. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I will see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.